Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Last Friday was the 19th anniversary of 9-11. Bishop Frank was right there in New York on that horrible day, and he'll talk about his experience that day and how Catholics should respond to evil on today's Let Me Be Frank. But first, can I ask for your help? We're just a few weeks away from our first ever on-air pledge drive. This is a big moment for us since Catholic radio stations depend heavily on pledge drives to keep their operations going. You can help simply by spreading the word and getting as many folks listening to us on the air as possible. The more folks listen, the more they learn and are able to help their families, their community, and the church. Go to www.veritascatholic.com for more information. All right, let's get into it. I want to welcome you all back to Let Me Be Frank. And it's my pleasure to introduce the Bishop of Bridgeport, Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, how are you doing, my friend? Doing well, thanks, Excellency. And you? Good. Yeah, good. In these crazy times we live in, yeah, I'm doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I look back in my calendar from last March, and I had written in there um, for the final two weeks of March, marked off in red, it said temporary coronavirus shutdown. I guess we all thought it was only going to be two weeks. I know. I know. I know. And it still seems to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not uh, to veer off on the topic, but just one interesting thing. I I stumbled on this news article that said the young young people who have come down with severe symptoms of COVID-19, if they become infected, uh, 60% of them retain some issue with their hearts. So it's just, it's right. So we should not let our guard down. We have to stay vigilant. Yes. Have to stay vigilant. Yes. So what are we and talking about this week? Well, Excellency. Stocks, bonds, <laughs> sports. That's, that's, my old, that's my old job. Uh, last, uh, last Friday, Excellency, was September 11th. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it feels like uh, the events of that day are fading a little bit in the minds of much of the country. Although I, I think it will never mm-hmm. fade in this area, especially among those of us who knew people in the city or were in the city mm-hmm. on that mm-hmm. day. And you've spoken about your experiences on that day, but mm-hmm. for the folks who maybe haven't heard it yet, uh, and in tribute anyway to the memory, um, mm-hmm. can you tell us about where you were mm-hmm. on September 11th? Absolutely. September 11th, I, it is burned in my memory. It's, it's, you know, we all have days in our lives when we look back and they're just vivid and they're unforgettable. Um, like for example, the day I was ordained a priest, the day I was with my mother when she, when she died. And 9-11 is in that category. It was a beautiful September day. I, I, was, I specifically remember noting how blue the sky was. Yes. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. Yes. And I was pastor of St. Dominic's in Bensonhurst. And I had begun the day like I normally do, which is I say my own prayers, I, and I'm in my own world, so I say my own prayers, have breakfast, all the rest, wash up, celebrate Holy Mass, and then go for communion calls if there were any. And that day, I did go to a communion call. And I should have been more alert, but I was not, that when I arrived at the communion call, and the, the gentleman I was giving communion to, um, his wife would always join us for prayer, but this time she didn't. 
She was very polite, let me in. I went over to the bedroom and she didn't follow. But I thought maybe she was, I don't know, who knows, maybe doing something. Mm-hmm. Finished the complete service, gave him Holy Communion. Walked out. And she was standing in front of the television. And I said to her, I said, is everything okay? And I remember, as if it was yesterday, she just pointed to the television. And there it was. One of the World Trade Center towers was on fire. There was smoke coming out of it. And I, I, at first I thought it was, it was like fiction, like a TV show. And then I realized almost instantaneously, no, it wasn't. It was real. And then in your mind, I was just thinking, well, what could have gone wrong? I mean, an explosion, a fire, somebody, who knows? And we exchanged niceties, but instinctively I said, I got to get back to the parish and see what's going on. And driving back to the parish, which wasn't far, 10, 11 city blocks, you could feel that the mood of the city, even in the neighborhood, had just changed. And I was still very much in the dark until I got back to the rectory and really began to watch and understand the enormity. And then the second tower was attacked. And you could see it in the video with your own eyes. I mean, it's just, it was an astoundingly transformational thing to see. And then to consider all those who were in those buildings. You weren't watching an historic fact, you were watching the unfolding of an evil act that was a tragedy you know, that, that was unparalleled in my experience. Yeah. And then the rest of the day, I mean, just it, it unfolded in a way that um, there were some very poignant moments, but people came flocking to church because they had nowhere else to go. Yeah. So the church was always open, so I exposed the Blessed Sacrament. And first there were a few, then there were 10, then there were 20, and then there were, I would say, at least 100 people in church praying. Because we have, we've, at, at least in my lifetime, we, I had never seen anything like it. I had never seen an enemy attack in our midst. It's always the other place, the other side. We go there. Yeah. This time they came to us and towards the early part of the afternoon, it began to dawn on me that um, these are people I know. These are friends of mine. These are parishioners. Right. These are the sons and daughters of parishioners. I mean, we were on the uh, subway line, so it was easy on the entering, get on the entering, go right into the city. So the, 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 the horror of it, the magnitude of it, began to become amplified and grew as people came in hysterics. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. Where's my brother? Where's my son? Where's my daughter? And I'm just standing there. I have absolutely no idea what to say. I have no idea how to respond. You know, you just hug someone. They cry. You cry. But what else? There is nothing to say. Yeah. Right? Um, Bishop Daly. I remember seeing images of Bishop Daly at the time he was the Bishop of Brooklyn. And he was a missionary in Peru. Before, he was a, a priest of Boston. He was a missionary in Peru. And then... Um, at the St. John Vianney Society, and you could see his missionary instincts just kicked in. He, he went to St. James, the Cathedral of Brooklyn, which is basically at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge, Flatbush Avenue. 
And he just stood there greeting people as they walked home. Many of them covered, literally some of them, you can only see their eyes, they were just covered with soot. Much of the soot was white. Yeah. Uh, it was almost, they looked ghostly. And he was giving out water and inviting them in for prayer or blessing them. And, um, and I may have told this story, the most provocative moment was in that moment in the middle of the afternoon when I just had to get out, go outside for air. I just, and it was dead silence. It was just silence. And, you know, silence is a part of our lives, should be a part of our lives, but not in the middle of a busy intersection in the heart of Brooklyn and in one of the great cities of the world. Right. So it was almost as if a blanket was put over everyone and everything, that there was almost a muffled, a muffling of life. Because people were suddenly grappling with such horrendous evil and the human suffering and all of the tragic consequences. And it is such an overwhelming experience that there is no real way to speak of it initially. There is nowhere to go, per se. It is, you just sit where you are, you stand where you are. And I'm not even sure it was thinking, it was just being present. So, um, and we've had other experiences like that, I'm sure, in the history of the country, of which I was not a part, I'm sure the same sort of thing happened at Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. when the enormity of what happened, happened. And that was an attack on American soil. Although I guess in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii wasn't yet a state, I suppose it was a territory, right? if my history is correct. But um, regardless, it was in the heart of our city. And then I remember having led a prayer service at night where literally there must have been hundreds of people on 20th Avenue. The church was full. There was not a place to go. There, it was, I had never seen anything like it at St. Dominic's. Hmm. And I was exhausted. I was just mentally exhausted. I was exhausted. And then I remember going to bed, not being able to sleep, which is not uncommon for me, right? And having this gnawing sense of anxiety of will it happen again, and if so, where? Yeah. I'm sorry to keep going on and on. I could tell no. you, story. we could talk for five hours on this. Yeah, no, but that last thing that you said, I mean, that was, that was so many people were having that feeling. I just remember there was this, this, this pall of uh, uncertainty and fear that, you know, and rumors we're gonna be attacked again. Where's it gonna be? In the subways, uh, gas attacks in the malls or the hospitals, you know, all these things. And thank God, none of them came true. But I also remember even stronger than that was this tremendous um, patriotism and unity that was felt even among strangers, everywhere you went, you know, everyone was so kind to each other. Even in New York, drivers were letting other drivers merge in, you know, um, right. everyone's right. waving at each other. Right. Well, I think there was an intermediate step 
to. I think there was a natural, um, almost instinctive desire at that moment to draw ranks together. Mm-hmm. That that if we're going to if we're going to face this, we have to face it together. And that this whole big thing, you know, there's a lot of pride among New Yorkers. Even now, when you drive into New York, right? New York tough. Right. Well, I'm not sure how tough it really is in the end, but the truth <laughs> is, there is this. This, this cultural sense, right? And that's true everywhere, but particularly in the city, because they have this, uh, New Yorkers have a reputation of being tough and being callous and being uncaring. All of that really, I don't think is true, to be honest. But, but everyone came together, you're right, but was sustained it for a while, because that, that could fade quickly. It took a few months to fade, three, four months to fade. It's unfortunate it faded at all, yeah. Because of the heroism, the profiles of, of heroism whose stories began to be told. Yes. For example, the passengers on the flight that was presumably destined to crash into the Capitol. Mm-hmm. That was, what was it in Pennsylvania? Yeah, Shanksville, right? Pennsylvania. Shanksville. And the, how they rose up and literally wrestle the plane out of the hands, right? Yes. At their own cost, the cost of their own lives, right? Yes. Or all of those hundreds of firefighters and police and first emergency and even chaplains who went to that sacred area, ground zero, right? And, and their heroism. And then it's the many stories you hear and, you, and at the time you heard mm-hmm. of, of just how people responded. You know, it, when my first years here, I told a story of confirmation in, in my homilies, okay? And allow me to retell it here. It's just a beautiful story, right? It's the story of a young man who woke up that day in Times Square at a hotel after many, many, many months of looking for just some time to relax, not native to New York. He wanted a cup of coffee. He wanted these supposedly famous bagels that New York makes. He got up late, went downstairs, and he knew, even he knew, something was not right. Because everyone was walking, running away from downtown, literally, even through Times Square. And this young man instinctively knew that he had to go in the opposite direction. Yeah. And he did. He made his way all the way down Manhattan. Didn't get there till early afternoon. Subways had stopped running. And he winds up in the chaos of what's now ground zero. And he stumbles on a man, an elderly man, unknown to him, screaming, screaming at the top of his lungs. Is anybody there out there can help me? So this young man works his way to the, finds the voice where it's emanating from, sees this man, and he's pinned under all of this rubble and, and oh, I mean, it's just a mess. And this older man sees him, peers through the darkness, man-made, okay? It's night in the middle of the day. And he peers and sees this young man. And interestingly enough, his response was to scream even louder. Hmm. Please don't leave me here to die. 
And this young man says to him, he said, sir, he said, I'm a Marine. And a Marine never leaves his mission unaccomplished. He said, and you are my mission. And that young man tried to free the man as best he could. As first responders had to just regroup because many of the first responders who came perished, right? In the, those initial hours to try. And I think to myself, see that is the profile of a hero where you have a natural goodness and you respond in that natural goodness to serve a man you never met in your life, chances are we'll never meet again, and there's something impelling you far greater than you. Yeah. Okay, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the grace of God's life dwelling in us. So, so you had the immediate heroes, the ones, that, and then the, I call them the, the, the unknown heroes that almost would shame us to say, when you want to slip back to your old ways, well, how come if these people can really do it, what is your excuse that you can't do it, that you're just standing there worried about your own skin? Yeah. How does that work? Right? But those memories faded. And those stories were told over and over again until people stopped telling them. And that we slipped back to our old ways, right? Yeah. So, you know, I've, I, I've mentioned, I've had some, some very dear Jewish friends and, and, and among our Jewish sisters and brothers, they're very keenly aware that you cannot forget. You cannot forget. Yeah. You need to remember the past or you will repeat the evil of the past. And 19 years later, I've stopped telling that story at confirmation, in part because the young people I'm confirming have no personal recollection of what we're talking about. Soon their parents won't either. Yeah. And 9-11 will become just another chapter in a history book that you read. Yeah. But from a person of faith, it is a tremendous catechism of the presence of evil, the power of grace, the power of hope, to your point, the, the, the healing power of community and self-sacrificial love that even people who are not Christian can understand right, and resonate with. So we have to tell this story. We have to keep this story alive. Yes, definitely. And, and not, just the, not just the horrible aspects of the story, but the, the amazing aspects of the story. Two, two things that were found there in the rubble um, and Excellency, you know about these, of course, a lot of people know the Ground Zero Cross that was found mm -hmm. by a construction worker two days later. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, and then they, they moved that, I guess, to a recovery zone um, on Mayor Giuliani's yes. orders. And then they started having mass there. Right, right. Right. The, the, other, the other thing was, um, and I didn't know about this until uh, just this past Friday, but I guess there was a Bible that was found in the rubble by a fireman. And the Bible was melted to a piece of heart-shaped steel. And uh, when he looked at it, and they, it's, I think it's in the museum now, um, it was opened, it was melted open to the verse uh, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, I mean, oh, really? I did not know that. I knew yeah. about the cross. I've seen the cross, but 
Oh, that's fascinating. You know, I've not gone down to the memorial garden. I, you know, it's funny. It's even all this time has passed. You know, and I go back to visit my relatives in Brooklyn, and and I, I have my my parents' apartment in Brooklyn, and um, I have not. I, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but I can't pull myself to go. Yeah. And maybe I should because that's part of keeping the memory alive. See, I remember going to Regis on the end train, watching the World, the World Trade Center being built. Wow. Okay, because of course you go over the Manhattan Bridge, so you have a beautiful view. So every day you could actually see the towers over this just rising higher and higher. The marvel technologically, architecturally, the courage of those men and if they were women, I'm not exactly sure, presumably they were as well, who were hanging off of these steel girders, 90, 95, 100 stories high. You could see them. They were like little ants, but you could see them, right? And then when it was all done, I'll never forget, my father said, what two ugly buildings they are. No character. They're, they're the same on the top, on the bottom. <laughs> I said, well, Dad, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, architecturally, it was a marvel because they were exactly proportioned the same way rather than like the, the Empire State Building that kind of pivots to the right. top, right? But did you or I or anyone else know that they were also designed to do exactly what they did? To fall They were right designed on to implode. Wow. Because could you imagine, could you actually conceive of the catastrophe far greater than the loss of life just by the building. If the building had toppled over, yeah. how many other buildings would have collapsed under it? Oh my God, people could not run fast enough to get yeah. out of its way. No, so I mean, whoever the architect was, my father said it was an Italian. I'm not sure if it is or not, but of course my father thought every great achievement was made by an Italian. <laughs> right. but, but it could very well have been an Italian. I do not know that. Either way, but whoever the person was, was a genius. Yeah. Okay. You, know, you know, Excellency, when I was doing uh, a little prep for today's show, um, I saw, and it, I don't know why it didn't register with me when it, when it happened, but um, the day after 9-11, so on September 12th, the Holy Father, John Paul II, went out and addressed the pilgrims in St. Peter's. And um, I read his long address, and there's just a couple lines that stand out to me. Would you mind if I just read them to you, Excellency? No, please, I would love you to. Okay. The human heart has depths from which schemes of unheard ferocity sometimes emerge, capable of destroying in a moment the normal daily life of a people. But faith comes to our aid at these times when words seem to fail. Christ's word is the only one that can give a response to the questions which trouble our spirit. Even if the forces of darkness appear to prevail, those who believe in God know that evil and death do not have the final say. Christian hope is based on this truth at this time, our prayerful trust draws strength from it. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, in the end, if this life is the only life we have, then evil did triumph that day. Right. For those 3,000 plus individuals were robbed of the life they could have had, and there is nothing else. But we know differently. We intuit it. We feel it in our bones. 
We know it when we go to the graves of the people we love. For anyone who's attuned to the, to the depths of his heart or her heart, there is a basic, deep, abiding rebellion to the, what is considered by the rest of the world the finality of death. We know there is more. Love demands the more. So evil is in itself self-defeating. It is self-defeating precisely because it has no say on love and it has no grip on eternal life and glory. It can do nothing to stop that. So it is destined to fall in upon itself and to defeat itself. And the victory is in Jesus Christ. So those who stand with the Lord, who stand in his passion, who stand in his suffering, who are also not fearful of having to give until it hurts, who are acquainted with suffering, as the prophet tells us. For those who do that, evil will never be victorious. Never. Never. Yes. And the father of evil knows it. And it gnaws at his heart, and he deserves every minute of it. <laughs> yes. Yep. Right? Yep. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Mm-hmm. Excellency, we're... Although, though, yes, yes, go ahead. Are we going to take a break? We're just going to take a quick break. We'll stay on this topic when we come back, but pivot slightly. Uh, but yes, you can finish the thought when we come back. Yes. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio... The folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We're talking about uh, the events of September 11th and the problem of evil in the world. And Excellency, I cut you off uh, right before we went to the break. No, that's quite all right. Um, I, I just, there was just one last thought I had. There was one other lasting memory from 9-11, and it was what transpired the weeks after. In one case, it was almost two months later, when parishioners were laid to rest once they were found. And of course, what was found? A finger, you know, um, human bones, and there was one funeral where there was nothing found. And I remember talking to the parents of the young woman and um, how hard it was for them to have nowhere to go to mourn. Wow. See, that is, that's the lingering suffering. And the other thing we have to acknowledge, my friend, is that those heroes who went in to 9-11, even though 
thousands died that day, hundreds of people died in the weeks and months and years after. Yeah. From cancer and so many respiratory diseases that they suffered from because they went there. Yeah. Right? And I remember on CBS a few years ago, they interviewed a gentleman who was dying from lung cancer. I mean, it was just, just such a beautiful testimony of faith. And, um, and he knew he was dying, and they interviewed him. And the interviewer asked the question, knowing everything you know now, if you had to do it again, would you go back? Would you go? And he said, yes, I would. Amazing, right? Yeah. So yeah. how could you have such, hero such heroic, inspirational, grace-filled behavior and the petty stuff that a lot of ordinary life is filled with? Petty nonsense, right? Don't you think it's time we get rid of the petty nonsense? Yeah. The bickering, the arguing, the stuff we waste time on, as if all of that is important. And if the angel of death came to us and said, all right, Kajano, it's time to the Father, to the throne, to the judgment. This stuff, half the stuff you say, well, who cares? Well, yeah. Then who cares now? Why, why do we do what we do? And it takes a national crisis to shake us, and then we slip back into it. Does it always have to take a national crisis to wake up? That's the, that's the, the enduring question from 9-11. And almost a pandemic, we've kind of repeated it. In those early days of the pandemic, we were almost like we're in this together, we're going to sacrifice and we're gonna quarantine and we're gonna settle into our homes. And, and now suddenly, six months later, people are still dying by the thousands. And they're partying and they're going to graduation parties and go to the beach and they're going here and they're going there. I'm saying to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, yeah. and the yeah. homily. It's the I end of my homily. It, it there's, there's a clear difference in um, somebody who's living for Christ, knows that they're living for Christ. You know, we have a lot of times when someone younger uh, or not old, when they, when they lose their life suddenly, we often say, how terrible or what a waste. Um, and it is tragic, but I just think of the countless martyrs throughout history and they all went joyfully to the deaths and the believers around them they didn't say what a waste they said um how blessed that they were able to provide such a witness to the faith right um, well but because they actually believed in a life that follows if you do actually fully truly believe there is a life all right of which this is just the seed then what's to fear in death yeah only the greater the more blessed, the more beautiful is coming, if you believe it. If you don't believe it, then you're gonna to cling to this life and as, as hard as you can because what comes next, right? Yeah. But there is, there is evil that we have to deal with in the world today. And a couple of weeks ago, you highlighted you know, the difference in the response uh, to Christ's passion between Peter, who lashed out at the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear versus Mary, who accepted with sorrow, but with complete trust in God's will and with surrender at the foot of the cross. And so I'm bringing that up because uh, when something like 9-11 happens or Sandy Hook or some other horrible evil, 
Um, even what we've seen recently uh, on a lesser scale uh, to a degree with ca- attacks on Catholic churches around the country, um, what, what really should be, what's the proper or an appropriate Catholic response to evil? Well, that's a, that is a very profound question. And I think evil is the generic term, but evil always exists in a specific form. And depending on what form it takes and the circumstances involved, we need to respond appropriate to that circumstance, that manifestation of evil, right? So we have to consider some of the evil that we experience is the consequence of our own sins, right? And therefore, the response there is not to cover it up, not to deny it, to admit it, to admit uh, my actions, my decisions created this evil here, this harm, this breaking of a reputation, this taking of an item that was not mine. And therefore, it's typical of anything we as Christians. You need to admit to it, you need to repent of it, you need to seek forgiveness of it, and you need as best you can to make restitution for it. Then there is the evil that is, I'm going to say, of a more natural bend. The consequence of the fall. Concupiscence. Mm-hmm. Concupiscence itself is not evil, but causes us to be led into evil by our self-absorption. Right? Death itself is a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. Right? So is disease, natural disease. If Adam and Eve had not fallen, we would have lived in natural happiness, not in the blessed happiness we have in heaven with the grace of the Holy Spirit, but natural happiness. And they would have been, they would not have known death. So part of this is a consequence of the history we have, right? And therefore we respond in faith, just as you said. So death has been conquered. Notice, Jesus didn't take death away. He conquered it. He rose, as we mentioned in, in an earlier podcast together, that he still has the wounds in his, in his resurrected, glorified body. So he doesn't take death away, but he conquers death, right, for in us. And then there is the evil one mm-hmm. and the demons and all those spiritual beings who in their one act of freedom rebelled against that which God asks. And they are real, they are present, they tempt, they thwart, they disfigure, and they seek the ruination of anyone and anything that is here trying to honor, worship, and serve the one true God. Will there be ultimate victory for them? No, of course not. Of course not. It's the ultimate frustration. For, they, for all that they do, they, they, they are already defeated in Jesus Christ. But what they want is to take as many, as many and as much collateral damage with them in their final defeat, when that becomes evident, complete, and in fulfillment. What a diabolical attitude. 
and we have sanitized evil. And that is very unfortunate. We talked about that. I'm going to talk about it again. We cannot excuse it. We cannot explain it. And we cannot sanitize it. Mm -hmm. We cannot admit it into the lives of our children thinking it's a joke. It is not a joke. It's not a joke. Yeah. Okay. And there are many people in this world who suffer from oppression from evil. I could tell you a story when I was in the seminary. This was my second year in theology. And uh, I went to the Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington. And for those who may have been there, and I'm sure many have not, you park in the back of the building. The building, first of all, is just huge, huge. Uh, it's, it's literally, it's like a fortress. And, um, and interestingly enough, it, if my memory serves me correctly, it was $3 million to build. It has over 200 bedrooms. And in that time, it was the Diocese of Brooklyn, it was all of Long Island, and it was paid in cash in 1929, 1930, right at the beginning of the height of the Depression. Anyway, I arrived to the seminary, and I go to the back and park. And you know, I consider myself fairly reasonable. I'm not delusional, right? I'm not. I have other problems, but that's not one of them. <laughs> And uh, turn my car off, my little Chevette, and all of a sudden, I had this sense something was not right, that I was not alone. So my, my immediate instinct was to say, all right, this is, you know, it's your imagination, it's crazy, get out of the car and get inside, have your snack, and go do what you gotta do. I get out of my car, close the door, and it's lit with these floodlights. As I was walking through the lit portion, I still had this gnawing sense. When I walked into the space between the parking lot and where the entrance of the door is, which is about a good 100 feet, when I walked into the darker portion, the hair in the back of my neck stood up straight. It was almost like it was electric. And I felt two hands on my back as cold as ice. I could feel all 10 fingers. And I said, in the name of Jesus, I cast you away. Whatever or whoever you are, you will not enter this building. And I literally sprinted to the door went in, closed the door, and it ended. And I was perspiring. It was cold out. I was perspiring. Wow. And, and I reflect back on that. And it's almost as if, as I interpret it, it is not even so much that I was under a spiritual attack, because that has also happened in my life. Mm -hmm. Right? But... Um, but it was almost as if a veil was lifted so that I could see what I needed to see so I would not forget when I became a priest 
that there is evil, personal and real. And when the world has it veiled, it's almost as if the Lord would have said, let me glimpse for you what exists so that you do not forget, right? Do not forget. Yeah. But do not be afraid. Yeah. yeah in, in, the, in the creed at every Mass, we say that God created all things visible and invisible. And mm-hmm. so there is mm-hmm. invisible. You said um, a few months ago mm-hmm. that uh, you were having priests and pastors um, ask you for um, more deliverance type prayers yes. in their churches. Yes. So the diabolical yes. is out there. How can we gird ourselves for the spiritual battle? Well, first and foremost, it's like if you plant a flower in a, in a, in a garden that is well tended, it will grow. So the diabolical likes a certain set of circumstances to grow. So in a world that is conflicted and divided and hostile, in a world where dialogue has been replaced with tribal warfare, in a world where we are more divided, even racially and ethnically divided, where we have lost any sense or a majority of the sense of a common good, a common fraternity. That is the seedbed evil loves for it can grow. So the diabolical doesn't just exist. It seems to me that the presence of evil, especially the evil one and the demons that are here, are thriving to the extent that we've created the circumstances where we are distracted, we are divided, we're at each other's throats, and we're not living the basic life that the Lord has asked. That's when we close ranks and there is nowhere for him to go. Yeah. But he comes waltzing in. (laughs) And that is one of the many consequences even of the sexual abuse crisis. Because you had priests who were predators, okay, who harmed young people, who took their innocence away for their own self-gratification or their own psychological maladies, blaspheming the Lord by celebrating the Eucharist at the same time. And you could see the father of evil just like walking through that because you, you open a gaping hole in the life of, of these innocent people and in the life of the church. That's diabolical. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And there's so many other examples of, 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 of uh, sinful behavior just setting the stage for evil to thrive when we should be the ones who have to create a, a truly <clears throat> safe space where goodness can thrive and evil has no place. And you know what we'll find? That over time, more people will want to stay in the place where there's goodness. <laughs> we talked yes. about evangelization. You want to evangelize, create a place where those who are there are humble, seeking holiness, love each other in the true sense of the word, which they, they will each other's good, 
and they stand together honoring the Lord through Our Lady to give, to give worship to the Father in the Holy Spirit. It's not complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you can see exactly what you're talking about, Excellency. In times of uh, nine, like 9-11, you said that St. Dominic's was jam-packed. After uh, the horrible tragedy of Sandy Hook, I know St. Rose of Lima was jam-packed oh, around the clock. Of course it was. So of course it was. People want to go. Yeah. Because they changed the seedbed. They realized... You know, so you know what we were arguing before. You know, I don't like your garbage pails on my side of the driveway. So you know what I'm not talking. And now suddenly, I don't care about your garbage pails, because now we're in this together, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, right after that, the, the 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 environment changed, right? And the stuff that a lot of the the excuses we used to be petty and divisive, and we just set them aside because there was something. Far more important to deal with. Yeah. Right? And then that fades. And we go back to this other nonsense that all of us, myself at times, is, is guilty too. Of. Yeah. And evil is like water, in so much as it seeks the smallest crack to weasel its way in. Hmm. And if you and I, by our sinfulness, say, oh, you like the crack? Let me make it bigger for you. Mm-hmm. What do you expect is going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's there, but there's uh, the U.S. bishops recently put out um, a statement about some of the troubles that are happening in the, in the world. And, and the line I love from that statement is um, they said that we should respond to confusion with understanding and to hatred with love. Mm-hmm. Changing the seedbed. Right. That's what Francis, St. Francis, was saying, right? Which is beautiful prayer. Yeah. Excellency, uh, let's take one more break and then we've got uh, listener questions when we come back. Great. Veritas Catholic Network is having our first ever pledge drive during the week of October 5th through 9th. And you can join the Veritas family. This is a big moment for us and for you because this is your station. As Mother Angelica used to say, this station is brought to you by you. So please help us make this first pledge drive a huge success. Spread the word and let's get as many people as we can listening to Veritas. And keep your station going strong by supporting us during next month's pledge drive. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, tis the season, so uh, we've gotten a few emails. Is it Christmas? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a little bit more of a sour season than that. <laughs> we, we've received a few emails asking various questions about uh, the upcoming election, and mm-hmm. I just want to um, preface this by saying that, you know, for us nonprofits in the Catholic media, we really need to tread very carefully. This is more for the listeners, Excellency, so they don't think you're dodging anything. Um, but we need to tread very carefully along regulations that have been laid out by the FCC and the IRS. We can't endorse particular candidates or a party right. on the air. We can talk about issues. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of take all of the questions and I'll just kind of wrap them up into my own version of a question for you. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. this. How should Catholics approach the voting booth this November 
and which issues mm -hmm. should be the biggest priorities for us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your insight about we as people of faith, as leaders of faith, approach the political arena by being teachers of issues and the church's stance on those issues is, is the most effective way we can help, be of help. The truth of the matter is, um, there is no politician and no political party that truly espouses the full teaching of the Catholic Church. Both its moral teaching and its social teaching. And that makes the decision that each person has to go through very difficult because you are weighing goods and you need to ask yourself this is something this person stands for and so do I believe deeply and this is something that this other person stands for for which we know is the truth and which we also believe but I can't have half of him and half of him right be my congressman or my senator or my president so it has to become a process. So first, a person needs to be educated in that which the church teaches, all of what the church teaches, not what I think is important of what the church teaches. I will remind our listeners that heresy is a half-truth, okay? We are obligated to learn the full truth. That's step one. Step two is I think everyone needs to explore the platforms of both parties and the candidates that you are going to be asked to vote on in their, in their entirety. Because it is very easy for all of us or some of us to be caught in a political gamesmanship between candidates and between parties. Our allegiance is to Christ. I'm a proud American, I was born in this country, I love this country, but this country is not my eternal destiny. There was a time, there was no United States, and I have no idea what future holds. But I do know there's a kingdom of God, and that kingdom will last forever. My allegiance is to my king first, who is Jesus Christ. So let's get that straight. Yep. So in this imperfect world, where we need to have political leaders, so once you've learned the issues, once you learn the candidates, then there is really a, a discernment of conscience as to how is it you're going to exercise your civic duty. And I would say this, there are some, some really dear friends of mine who have already said to me, you know, Frank, I'm out. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do here. And my response back is that's not good enough. You can't do that. You can't absent yourself from the process. If it's agonizing, if it's hard, you have to follow your conscience. If you think it's clear, follow your conscience. But always make it in the mind of Christ, in the mind of the church. The one thing I would caution our listeners not to do is to immediately condemn their fellow Catholics who are struggling with this question in a different way. Because I think that is, besides it being uncharitable, 
But the truth of the matter is, there may also be strategic issues in mind. So if the entire agenda of the church cannot be realized in the next four years, for many political reasons, there can be some faithful Catholics who say, well then of the spectrum of things that we need to change, there is more possibility that there is change in these areas than in these areas. And if this person can make change in these areas, it is still advancing what the church wants in the, in the public square to ultimately make this country a country that is one that values all human life from conception to natural death, that values every individual life in every stage of its life, that seeks justice and equality, that seeks to root out racism and bigotry, that sees both solidarity among all people and the subsidiarity principle, which is at the heart of Catholic social teaching, to see all of that realized in just wages and, and structures that don't discriminate and education that's open to everyone where there's equal, I could go on and on and on. All of that is in Catholic teachings. All of that is the foundations of our faith being lived out in the concrete. So I'm big for debate. I think there should be vigorous debate even among Catholics. But please don't devolve it into, you know, demonizing people. Because that is not helpful. And I'm talking about your neighbor, your friend, your wife, your, who, who in, in, in conversations about politics, you know, it's that, remember the seedbed? Don't create the seedbed. Yeah. There. Yeah. Okay? Because yeah, there's no one political party right now here in the U.S. that really abides by all of church teaching. And you could, you could follow, uh, for the few years that you have here um, on earth, you could follow one political party, but you're actually going to live forever in one place or another place. It's better to follow the church and then end up in the right place for eternity. Correct. In the end, I am waiting, I am hoping, I am praying for that group of individuals who look at both political parties, the main political parties, and has the courage, the conviction, the perseverance, and the backing to take what is truly authentic in each one, authentic to Catholic faith, and put them together in a party that is truly one, every practicing Catholic can say, this is where we stand. You know, we've always talked about a third party in the country, and is it feasible? I, I am of the conviction that if, if someone did that, if they were, that party would sweep into power to cause the other two to go back to the drawing board and examine their conscience as to why they do not hold what people of faith, and quite frankly, people of goodwill and people who are reasonable, I think should hold, yes. in my humble opinion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, if you're so listening... I hope you didn't lose your license, my friend. <laughs> I think you did a good job. <laughs> if you're out there and you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on the Veritas app or on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and uh, Veritas is there too. Uh, Excellency, uh, may I ask that you give us your blessing before we go? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send your spirit upon us, 
upon those who listen to our conversation, upon your sons and daughters throughout the world in these very challenged and troubling times. Give to us an outpouring of peace, of discernment, of mercy and forgiveness, of unity in your love. And may your blessing come upon us as we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Steve, I'll see you next week, my friend. Thanks, Bishop Frank. See ya. All the best.